G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. We are the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Not going to lie, I'm quite excited about uh, this episode and the ones to follow it. We're going to dive deep into the character of Enoch, the patriarch who walked with God and never died. That's right, Chris. But first, we're going to press pause. What? Already? What do you mean? Well, we've got some background to cover. And because I want to talk about Enoch and get into everything that means for us here in Genesis 5. But I've already said a lot about this and I ain't saying it all over again. So hit pause. Whip out one of our previous episodes. It's season one, episode eight. It's the Q&A bit, which starts around the 16-minute mark, and that's going to give you the background on what happened before the word behind Enoch became a name, okay? Okay. Well, kids, you heard the man. Press pause. This episode will still be there when you get back. I promise. Do it. Off you go. Go on. G'day, folks, and welcome back again to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. We are the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We've just been on a whirlwind tour of ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt, and now we're back to continue our discussion of Enoch. That's the theory anyway. I bet you 50 bucks that most people just sat there and went, yeah, maybe later. I'm sure he's going to give us a recap anyway. Well, guess what? That's not going to happen. We've got a lot to cover and we're moving on. And because I've already said a lot about the name of Enoch, we're going to do this again. So get ready on the pause button because now we're going to go back to season four. This time it's episode number 11 and you can pick it up from about the two minute mark. Tim, do you seriously think that people are going to pause this podcast again and go and listen to another episode again before they come back here again? Well, I'm not going to say it all over again, so there it is. It's important because eventually we're going to be contrasting against what I had to say about that other guy in Genesis 4, so that background will be important. So go on, off you go, back to Season 4, and we'll catch you back here in a second. Okay, folks, here we go again. G'day, folks, and welcome back again once more to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. We are the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We've just been on our second tour of Iraq, I mean, Eridu, and we're back again to continue our discussion of the biblical Enoch of Genesis 5. Please tell me we're not going to do that again. Yeah, you can relax now, although at this point, the only people still listening might be the people who didn't bother and just waiting for us to get past all this tomfoolery. Ignorance is bliss. Anyway, having said all that, let's connect those dots for whatever audience I still have left at this point. There are probably only five of you anyway. Hi, Warren. Hi, Amy. Hey, John. Hey, Doug. And hey, Aaron. Uh, yep, I think that's everyone. Well, if that didn't make everybody else turn off, we better get on with it. So, yeah, let's talk about Enoch, as in the guy from Genesis 5. Unlike the other guy in the line of Cain, he's pretty much universally considered to be portrayed positively here. So let's read our text in Genesis 5, and then we can talk about it. And just like I did last week... We're going to do this for the next couple of patriarchs as well. We're going to look at this in the different ancient translations that we have, which inform our biblical traditions. This time, I'm going to start with the Masoretic text, which, as you know by now, is the one that you'd be most familiar with, because it's probably the one you have in your Bible. So this is Genesis 5, verses 21 to 24 in the ESV. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, the ESV has a couple of footnotes there, which I'll talk about in a minute. I'm actually not going to read the same passage from the Samaritan Pentateuch because it's pretty much identical in form to the translation of the Masoretic text, which we just read. But things get a bit different when we start looking at the Septuagint. Of course, we've come to expect that by now. But anyway, here it is from the New English translation of the Septuagint. And Hanok lived 165 years and became the father of Methuselah. Now, Hanok was well-pleasing to God after he became the father of Methuselah for 200 years and had sons and daughters. And all the days of Hanok amounted to 365 years. And Hanok was well-pleasing to God, and he was not found because God transferred him. That's really quite different. It sure is, and there's some interesting stuff there to think about. We've already had the discussion back at the beginning of the season about the superior chronology of the Septuagint on the basis that it's supported by a large amount of evidence that the original Hebrew text contained the same chronology. So that means we're going to be analysing the numbers provided by the Greek text, but we might have to consider whether we need to adopt all of the features of the Greek text as well as the chronological information, or if we're free to preserve the reading provided by the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Masoretic text. Whichever version of this you prefer to read, you're still going to find that Enoch is portrayed positively in contrast to those patriarchs around him in this genealogy. Certainly Jared seems to have been portrayed negatively and the jury is out on the two patriarchs that follow Enoch, but we'll talk about that when we get there eventually. We're going to be talking about Enoch for some time. That reminds me of Captain Lawrence Oates. He was one of the guys who died in the expedition led by Robert Falcon Scott, you know, Scott of the Antarctic. His famous last words, as recorded in Scott's diary, were, I'm just going outside, maybe some time. And off he went into an Antarctic blizzard at night with no boots on, and he froze to death. So I hope this isn't going to be a permanent digression, Jim. You're going to bring us back in one piece and very much alive to continue Genesis 5 after Enoch. Right? Of course I will. You couldn't get into Enoch after mentioning Antarctica and possibly get off track at all, could you? I mean, come on, let's not be silly. Oh, I don't know about that. Once again, we see that the new English translation of the Septuagint is far more sensitive to the original grammar than what we see in the ESV, which still insists that men can somehow bring forth children on their own. We talked before about how ridiculous that sounds, and this is definitely supposed to be read as a passive thing. A man becomes a father. He does not give birth to children. So again, assuming the Septuagint chronology, we're given a significant age at which Enoch becomes a father. Now, I haven't mentioned this earlier, although I did allude to the importance of word order a couple of times in the last few episodes. When you read Greek, you get the order of words in a number like the way that we do them in English. For example, you have 165 years. You're going from hundreds to tens to ones. Whereas in Hebrew, you read it as five and 60 years and 100 years. So you're going from ones to tens and then hundreds. Yeah, that's right. I remember you saying that, and I never would have thought that stuff was important until we started going through it here on the podcast. Remembering that the Hebrew original was translated into Greek, and that Greek translation preserved the original Hebrew in terms of its content, at least as far as Genesis 5 is concerned, what that means is that we need to take the Greek numbers and put them in the Hebrew word order so that we can reconstruct the most likely original form. And as I said just now, that means reading Enoch's age at the time when he became the father of Methuselah as 5 and 60 years and 100 years. That gives us three significant numbers to talk about, and I've already explained the significance of each of these. 
So for those who came in late, the short version is that Enoch is favoured by God. And there's your five, which signifies grace. He was a king, which is where the number 60 fits in. And the number 100 signifies the extent of his dominion being the totality of the people in the land. I might also mention that if we were talking about a worldwide dominion or something that spread beyond the borders of the land, then we should expect to see a number four as a significant feature, but we don't have it there. So I don't think we're looking at something like a far-reaching international kingdom. I think this is just regional. The fact that the Samaritan and Masoretic texts both feature only 65 years at this point is, as I said earlier, a feature of their revised chronology, which they need for the purposes of the stories that they're telling through this text. And again, for those who came in late, you can catch up on that by going back through the early episodes of this season where I talk in great detail about those chronologies. Please tell me we're not doing another flashback to a previous episode. But long story short, we have the Samaritans using this text to portray southern Israel or Judea as the bad guys who brought about the flood. And the flood is being used as a metaphor for the Judean-Babylonian war that resulted in the exile. And on the other hand, that revision came in handy for the Masoretes who appropriated it for their day-age view of eschatology. And that resulted in the modern preoccupation with the apparently imminent return of Christ in the time in which we live right now. I might also remind our listeners that this revised chronology first appeared in the Book of Jubilees. So actually the first text to state that Enoch walked with God for 300 years was the Book of Jubilees. Actually, it was written as six Jubilees and each one is 50 years. So there's your 300 years. So Enoch becomes the father of Methuselah. And at this time, something happens. Something changes and Enoch dedicates his life to God. We don't get told what it is that sparks this repentance. I would speculate that it was probably an appearance of God to Enoch that caused him to turn his life around. We're going to spend considerable time later on looking at what Second Temple Period authors had to say about Enoch, and when we do, there'll be some more discussion around this idea of repentance. At any rate, it seems that whether he walked with God, as the later translations have it, or he pleased God, as we find in the Greek, either way, this began only after the birth of Methuselah. So the next thing to look at is exactly what that looked like. We're still following the Greek chronology, which gives us 200 years rather than 300 or six jubilees. And back in the introductory episodes of this season, I dropped a little hint that I thought it was significant that the number 200 should appear in the Greek manuscript here and also in First Enoch, where that number is used to refer to the number of watchers who descended in the days of Jared on Mount Hermon. That's an interesting connection. Tell us about the significance of that number. The number 200 is significant because it appears in other places in later biblical texts, which were heavily influenced by First Enoch. And if First Enoch is drawing that number from the Septuagint, then it follows that the later biblical connections to this number may also derive from this point in Genesis 5. And what we're seeing here is building on the theme of 100 as the totality of mankind. Now, the significance of the number 2 really begins to shine here, because 2 is the number of rivalry or strife between parties. And I think that it could speak to the hybridization of humanity by the Watchers, or the rebellious sons of God, if you like. And in that sense, we also see the notion of a kind of complementary function of the number two, where two become one. And we see the fusing of the divine and human natures in the Nephilim. This number is alluding to the state of humanity at this point in the narrative. At least, that's the way it was interpreted in the Second Temple period. And you'll see that again in Revelation 9. We're not going to start talking about locusts, are we? Not right now, because we're focused on Genesis 5 and what the text is actually telling us. So we need to look at the affirmations of the text. And we're talking about a period of time in which Enoch had this close relationship with God. Then when we look at the Hebrew behind that phrase, walked with God, we find the kind of terminology one expects for walking in general or perhaps walking back and forth as you might expect the shepherd to do. It's an odd thing to do 
with God. If you were to walk in this sense with God, you would expect that it would be God who walks as the shepherd and you would walk as the sheep, you'd follow. But that's not exactly the limitation of the sense in which this word is meant to be understood. According to the Greek translation, Enoch pleased God. At least that's how we have the Greek translated into English. This comes from the Greek eoresteo, to be well-pleasing. So the question must be asked, how do these two words possibly relate to one another? What could be going through the mind of a Greek translator that he would pick up that Hebrew, hitalek, and give us the Greek, eoresteo? Hmm, what indeed? So what we've got here is a very interesting situation where we have a Hebrew idiom that doesn't exactly translate into Greek. Well, you can still get the idea. And I want to give a quick shout out to my mates over there in America who helped to confirm my thinking on this because I wanted to be sure that I was reading it right. So without sharing my thoughts, I checked with Dr. Matthew Holstead and also with Emily Dixon. So a big shout out to those guys. Thanks for your insight. They both came back with independent responses that confirmed what I was seeing in the text. So a big thanks to those guys because this was really weird. Here's the problem. I can see that in the book of Hebrews, the author uses the Greek term eoresteo as an equivalent for the Hebrew hitalek found in Genesis 5 with respect to Enoch. But when I searched the Septuagint for other examples of the same Greek term, I got things like this. Here are some examples of the Greek eoresteo from the Old Testament. The first couple we know from Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Uh, Again in verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So they're the first examples, the one we're looking at today from the Hebrew hitalek, and both of them are translated from the Greek as Enoch having pleased God. And as I said, the rest of these examples use the same Greek word, but I think you might find a challenge in substituting the terminology in question with the idea of pleasing or being pleased. This is Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So we have walked with there. Genesis 17, 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. A little connection back to Noah there. That's uh, very nice. Genesis 24, verse 40. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Okay, so we're reading along so far and you might be thinking, well, what's the problem? I can see how these work. We're still using the Hebrew hitalek. And we're getting a nice sense of security here as we go through these verses. Genesis 39, verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight, that's Pharaoh's sight, and attended him, is the translation there, attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Okay, so what happened to this idea of walking? We have attending. What's going on there? This is not the Hebrew hitalek. Instead, we have sharat, he served. And it's connected with the idea of having favor in Pharaoh's sight, which we see also connected with Noah, who walked with God. Genesis 48, 15. And he, that is Jacob, blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. We're back to walking here. This is familiar territory, and we've got the shepherdism idea associated here, but it doesn't come from that word. Uh, Exodus 21, verse 8. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. Now, wait a minute. We finally got an English translation of the Greek that gives us the idea of pleasing. But again, this does not come from the Hebrew hitalek, 
some translations appear to put this in the sense of sexual gratification in this context. Can anyone guess why I might be a little reluctant to adopt that interpretation? It actually comes from the Hebrew, which we often translate as the evil eye, ra'ain. I think we should read that as evil in his sight rather than not pleasing. Let's continue. We'll come back to this one. Judges 10 verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them. That's the gloss over that term there, from among them, and served the Lord and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, this isn't walking or pleasing, but we have foreign gods among the people. That's the Hebrew kareb, again, not hitalek. Psalms 26 verse 3, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. Psalm 35, verse 14, I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. That hitalek there doesn't sound very pleasant. Okay, so we've just had a bunch of examples, and you might see the difficulty in swapping those out with the word pleased. So what's going on here? Well, it seems like just last week I was talking about how you don't get exact one-to-one correspondences when you're translating terms. And I also mentioned the need to be sensitive to things like idiomatic expressions and to walk with someone isn't just about traveling near them. I would say that it has a lot to do with sharing your life with them. And in that sense, there's the idea of agreement and fellowship. And I think that those things should be quite pleasant. That sounds good. I like that interpretation. I like to see how that works. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Holstead and also Emily from the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a little plug there, uh, were both really helpful because they also arrived at the same conclusion as I did independently. And if we think about that, then the weird occasion in Exodus that I read earlier about the treatment of female slaves makes a lot more sense. In other words, if the reciprocal relationship isn't there and it's not cooperative and amicable and mutual, and it looks like there's no real loyalty in the relationship, then it's probably best to change the arrangement. This is in the context of a proposed marriage relationship and not a married situation. Think about that in terms of the way that God deals with the nations. If they do not walk with him, then he puts them under other masters. So with the idea of walking together and sharing in relationship, we can understand now the use of this Greek term, eoresteo, as seen in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews uses this word twice in Hebrews 11 with reference to Enoch, and he used it again in chapter 13. Let's have a look at those examples. Hebrews 11, verses 5 to 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, did you notice the parallel between pleasing God and drawing near to him? And that was reinforced by the idea of seeking him. We're back to this shepherdism idea again. And then we have another example. Hebrews 13 verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In this case, there is the command for sharing, which results in pleasing God. And we talked about that idea of living in fellowship, sharing together earlier. Don't forget that the letter to Hebrews is addressed to the church of believing Jews. That means that as the Jewish body of Christ, what they share with one another, they share with God. So it makes sense to see the same language that was in use with regard to Enoch, who was said to walk with God. So let's get back to that walking with God thing in Genesis 5. Through the combination of coming to terms with the Hebrew idiom and understanding the application of the terminology in the Greek, what we learned is that walking with God wasn't just about traveling together or being good. It was about sharing and participating in life together. That's how close Enoch was with God. 
And as we've already seen from those examples I read earlier, we're going to see the same language used with regard to Noah and Abraham. The thing is, with guys like Noah, you don't have traditions of these mystical journeys into the heavens and the revelation of divine wisdom and, and all that kind of stuff. So why do we get that with Enoch? Mm, good question. I would suggest that it's primarily connected to the idea that he was taken to be with God. And that's what the Hebrew behind our translation strongly implies. God took him to be where God is. That doesn't happen with Noah, even though he is said to have walked with God. It does happen with Abraham. He doesn't get removed from the land of the living, but he does experience the reality of what it's like to be where God is in the dream that he has in Genesis 15. If we understand Hitalek as to walk among rather than to walk beside, as a shepherd does with a flock of sheep, then what we find is that Enoch does not walk next to Elohim. He walks among Elohim. And as we know, the term Elohim is sometimes used of the Most High God as a title that shows him as the exemplary divine being, the God of all gods. But it's also used as a plural term referring to a multitude of divine beings that are not the Most High God. So what effect does that have then on this reading of the text? Well, what it does is it throws some ambiguity on exactly what was happening here with Enoch. Was he walking with the Most High or was he walking among the gods? because we have both possibilities here. But when we consider that Enoch was taken to be where God is, then we really don't need to settle on only one view of this. To quote a famous Tycho ad, why don't we have both? Yeah, exactly. This is the kind of ambiguity that paved the way for Second Temple period authors to consider the possibilities and expand on ideas that they developed from other parts of the Old Testament to present an apocalyptic narrative that portrayed Enoch as a type of messianic figure. Basically, they saw Enoch as somebody who was so devoted to God that he was able to share some aspect of the divine nature itself. And that's going to be no surprise for those of you who actually did go back and listen to those previous episodes that I mentioned earlier, which have all these connections to the ancient genre of literature known as ascent narratives. So we're going to talk about those. A moment ago, I mentioned the idea of Enoch as a type of messianic figure. Next week, we're going to look at that in more detail. So that's going to be really interesting because it's going to combine those elements of ascent narrative and Jewish eschatology and messianic expectation. But for now, it's time for answers to giant questions. Let's have some Q and some A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. All right, what have we got this week? Warren has a question for us about the origins of Superman, and you know I'm a huge Superman fan. Yeah, yeah. You know who else is a huge Superman fan? Jerry Seinfeld. I thought it was kind of interesting when I found out that Jerry Siegel, one of the co-creators of Superman, would sometimes write under the pen name Jerry S. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and Warren was asking if there was something kind of dark going on behind the scenes in the creation of Superman, which I found surprising. Yeah, apparently Gary Wayne reckons that Superman was the brainchild of evil Nazi white supremacists who were trying to create a race of super soldiers or something. Uh, yeah, and I can pretty much uh, confidently say that that's not a thing. Siegel and Schuster had been developing Superman since uh, 1933. It's actually quite a, a struggle to get the idea off the ground. So the original concept they presented was not very much at all like what eventually became Superman, however. 
Yeah, we discussed that when we talked about Superman back in season two of the podcast. The guys who invented Superman were not Nazis, were they? Uh, no, about as far removed as you could get. They were actually Jewish, and uh, they had the same God that we do. So Siegel's parents fled to America to get away from the anti-Semitism that was occurring at the time of Lithuania. And Jerry Siegel was actually on record as having served in the U.S. Army in World War Two. He was conscripted in '43 uh, and served until 1946 as for Joe Schuster, who certainly wasn't on the Nazi payroll. His big break into comics came after his drawings were presented to national allied publications, which eventually became DC Comics, on the back of discarded wallpaper shoots. He literally couldn't afford paper. Yeah, that's a different kind of role. I, I just can't see how we get the idea of Superman or the symbol that he wears representing some evil divine being or something. I think it's partly because Gary Wayne identifies the origin of Superman in basically the same breath as the origin of Dr. Occult. In the original concept, there may have been some overlap, but these were never the same characters. Neither had anything to do with the Nazi obsession with developing an army of superhuman warriors. Gary actually teaches serpent seed doctrine, which is why he seems to think that the origins of Superman are connected with serpentine divine beings that interbred with humans. He thinks that the logo on Superman's chest is an inverted pyramid with a serpent in it, and it's coloured yellow to represent light or wisdom, like some sort of Gnostic idea. Uh, he thinks that Superman's name features the name of the Canaanite god El, and then he goes on to make all these connections to Baal and serpent worship and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, honestly, this stuff is really uh, pretty silly. Uh, the actual inspirations of the creation of the Superman character is quite fascinating inspiring when you look into it. Um, but, yeah, it's like he's learned a little bit of stuff about this ancient mythology and thinks he can just plug it into whatever he can find in the modern day that looks anything like it and try and make it work. It doesn't work like that, Gary. So according to Gary Wayne, Superman is a Canaanite Nephilim antichrist unleashed on the American public by secret Nazi operatives posing as poor Jewish comic book writers. <laughs> Does he think that anybody has access to information these days? Like, we just have to take his word for it or something? You can just look this stuff up. It's, it's pretty easy. Yeah, well, I certainly did. It wasn't hard, actually. I got this from Wikipedia on the topic of Ubermensch, which is uh, one of uh, Gary's uh, favourite topics. Related to this, in 1896, Alexander Till made the first English translation of Nietzsche's book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, rendering Ubermensch as Beyond Man. In 1909, Thomas Common translated it as Superman, following the terminology of George Bernard Shaw's 1903 stage play, Man and Superman. Walter Kaufman lambasted this translation in the 1950s for two reasons. First, the failure of the English prefix super to capture the nuance of the German uber, though in Latin its meaning of above or beyond is closer to the German. And second, for promoting misidentification of Nietzsche's concept with the comic book character Superman. Kaufman and others preferred to translate Ubermensch as Overman, a translation like superior humans might better fit the concept of Nietzsche. According to Rudiger Safransky, some commentators associate the Ubermensch with a program of eugenics. This is most pronounced when considered in the aspect of a goal that humanity sets for itself. The reduction of all psychology to physiology implies to some that human beings can be bred for cultural traits. So that's the end of the quote and a really important statement there. This is where Gary Wayne was headed with his ideas. And it's kind of interesting that Gary Wayne's entire premise of his book and all of his research depends on the very same premise that underpins the eugenics program. For anyone who's interested in understanding why this stuff doesn't work, 
We actually did two full episodes of Refutations to Serpent Seed Doctrine back at the beginning of Season 4 of this podcast. And in Season 2, we talked extensively about why genealogies can only work in retrospect, and you cannot drive them toward the future. I've talked about that plenty of times, so I'm not going to go back over it again. But what about that logo on Superman's chest, Chris? What is it actually supposed to be, according to the comics? Um, according to the comics, that insignia on Superman's chest is actually the crest of Superman's Kryptonian family. And we can see in the 1978 film that all the different families had different crests on them. So it's a symbol of hope. It's not a big S for Superman. It represents the hope, hope of a better tomorrow. And by a better tomorrow, you're not talking about a dystopian, transhumanist, post-apocalyptic antichrist nightmare? <laughs> not even a little bit. Uh, now, don't misunderstand me on this. I'm absolutely not comparing Superman to Jesus. Uh, many uh, writers and filmmakers have tried to make that uh, comparison. But if you can't see how a couple of Jewish writers who were down in their luck might have, you know, the idea of a long-awaited Messiah in mind, then you just don't understand the Jewish mindset. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Chris. We shouldn't be looking at Superman as an antichrist, but rather as someone who represents the hope of Israel and keeping in mind here that Siegel and Schuster became American Jews. So this inevitably becomes an American hope and the hope ultimately of the world. And obviously that's not going to come through a fictional superhero, but that's where we just need to keep a little separation in our minds between the obviously fictitious and science fiction driven world of the comics and the reality of our world. Superman is not a reality in our world. He's not a threat to Jesus, but Jesus absolutely is real, and he is the hope of the world. And while we may see something in Superman that we long for, a kind of power and influence that we can't achieve in this life, we've got to keep some perspective, because in the resurrection, we're going to be like Jesus, which I would argue is far better than being like Superman. Yeah, I do remember reading, because Superman's Kryptonian name is Kal-El, his dad is Jor-El, he's, he's from the house of El, but not El is in the Canaanite God, but El is in like the Hebrew name for God or something, is that right? Yeah, well, um, I think it was only a couple of weeks ago we were talking about this actually, where Mahalalel, that suffix El as, as applied to a name, basically was like the equivalent to our English God. Like it's not a specific name unless we're referring to like the the most high God. And I mean, that's how the Canaanites did it because their, their dialect had El uh, rather than... In, in Israel, you've got Elohim, which builds on, uh. on a similar root and they carry a similar idea. And it's just a generic term for a divine being. Right. Gotcha. So there's nothing wrong with a Jewish person using that to refer to God, and that's actually what you see when you read Genesis and early in Exodus. Mm. Amen. I think that's a really good perspective to have, and that's where we're going to leave it for today. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Next time we continue our focus on Enoch and our deep dive into who he was and what he represents, we'll be back with more answers to your giant questions. So that's right, folks, especially if you have questions about Enoch while we're on the subject. But don't forget to send them in to giantanswers.com. Thanks for listening, as always. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. 
We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Yeah, some of those incidentals that catch you out. Yeah, teeth for a shoulder and, you know, bath mats and whatnot. Um, those are the things, you know. Those are, those are the great, important things life. Not great, but important. So I just banged it into the wall a minute ago. Um, did did the wall deserve it? Um, I probably deserve it. <laughs> uh, I, I wish it felt better, but uh, it doesn't. <laughs> okay, your normal job, full, full duties? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yep, back to uh, having religious debates with truck drivers. Oh, is that your normal job? That's pretty cool. That's what I do while I stand there and wait for oil <laughs> to fall in a hole. Right. Which is my job. Yes. Conversations today with the truck driver, he was like, oh, well, if God's real, then, you know, explain cancer and, you know, how come I got an injury and how come my mum died and blah, blah, blah. Well, oh, yeah, it's all God's fault that all these things happen. It's, it's always the same argument, isn't it? Yep. Yep. And I always just come back and go, oh, well, should God stop you from making your decisions? Because you seem to think that God should stop everybody else from making theirs. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The original Hebrew text contained, sorry. <laughs> um, let's try that again. Uh, maybe some time, and off he went into the uh, in, well, into it, and, and off he went into an Antarctic blizzard. Antarctic blizzard, and off he went into an Antarctic blizzard. That's an interesting connection. Tell us about. Oh, I'm going to try that again. We're not going to. St- what's wrong with me today? Now, don't um, understand. Don't understand me on this. <laughs> I will not understand you. <laughs> I will not.